I came across a question a while ago that got me thinking. How do you prepare for church on Sunday? For some of you, it might be a special day. You start on Saturday night making sure you have a clean outfit without any wrinkles so that you can look your nicest on Sunday morning. Maybe people will catch a sermon or two on TV or on the radio before coming to church. Others might be running a little ragged, though, trying to scramble with getting their farm chores in or trying to scramble getting their kids to listen and obey and to get here. And there might be some people who prepare by sleeping in. Because after all, you don't want to be caught snoozing during the service. And there are some who also will wrestle with looking at the clock, trying to figure out, now what time should I leave? I don't want to get there too early and have to stand there awkwardly with people. And I don't want to get there too late and show up late. So what's the best time to leave? To minimize the interaction that you have with other people. There are a lot of ways that people get ready for church. Now let me ask you a different question. What about preparing yourself for worship? What kind of things do you do to prepare yourself for worship? Do you know that there's a special category of psalms that are written specifically for this idea? They were written to get people ready to worship, and they would be sung on the way up to worship the Lord or on the way to celebrate some of the special feasts that they had. There are 15 of these psalms, Psalm 120 through 134, and they're known as the Psalm of Ascent, meaning that they're generally sung on the way to worship as you went up to worship the Lord. You always went up to worship the Lord. Even if it was farther south, you went up because you're going to worship the Lord. And so kind of meeting halfway, I guess. But there was this idea that you went up to meet with God. And so they went up to worship. That's why it's called the Song of Ascent, as they ascended to worship the Lord. Our text this morning is labeled as a Psalm of Ascent. And it's a good psalm for us to remember, not just on Sunday mornings, but every day of our lives. It's a psalm that prepares our hearts to worship the one true God. I'll invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Psalm 130 and stand out of respect for God's word as I read this text. Psalm chapter 130, reading in Jesus' name. A song of ascents. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Father God, these are your words, and your word is truth. We pray that you would sanctify us in your truth here today. And Father, that you would prepare our hearts for worshiping you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The psalm begins here with a recognizable human experience. Someone is finding themselves in the depths. We aren't told the circumstances of what these depths look like or what caused these depths, and I think that's intentional. I think it's purposely vague here for a reason, so that it can, uh, it can work for just about anyone. It's poetic language, expressing the idea of being lost at sea. And not only lost at sea, but sinking perpetually down, always getting lower and lower and lower, never finding a foothold, a place 
where no human soul will ever find you. A place where there will be no human contact and all of a sudden everything around you just shuts down and you sink to the depths. It sounds a bit dramatic, but have you ever found yourself in a, way, in a place that you can only describe as the depths? We've been there before and we're probably going to be there again at some point in time in our lives. There are people who are currently, presently in this place right now. The circumstances vary. Maybe it's a loss of a job, loss of a relationship, a loss of hope or meaning or purpose. It could be depression or addiction, stress, worry, anxiety, or fighting sin and never being able to win. All of these things can create in us or bring us to a place of the depths. Everything around us begins to feel meaningless, without purpose. And it's overwhelming. Everything is overwhelming. And there's probably a point in your life, again, that you could point back to and say, right there, that's when I was in the depths. When we find ourselves in these depths, our natural response is to just shut down, to look inside of ourselves, to shut the outside world out and say, you know what, I'll figure this problem out, but right now I just really got to get this right within me. And then maybe I'll accept some help or I'll do something else. But right now I got to do this for me. We look inside ourselves to see if we can figure out what it is that's causing that problem. And we treat, retreat back to false platitudes and as an attempt to give us some kind of meaning or some kind of footing for us that gives us any image of security or that we're doing all right. The problem is these things won't solve our problems and will only continue to sink deeper and deeper into the depths, especially when these illusions are revealed for what they are, just illusions and false hope, false truths. And when it falls, it will leave you that much more crushed, empty, jaded, and hopeless. The depths. Notice here what the psalmist does. He recognizes that this is the place that he is at. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't hide it. He doesn't pretend that it isn't there. Instead, he is honest about it. And he cries out to the Lord and he says, Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. And he cries out to the Lord, asking him to hear his voice, asking God to hear him out. That's not our typical first course of action, is it, when we find ourselves in the depths, crying out to God to hear us as we pray. Maybe a more prevalent answer, more prevalent response is anger. And we experience this anger for why would God allow this to happen to me? Why would he do this to me? How can he allow such a thing to happen? How is this possible? Or maybe even doubt. And we go to doubt. Doubting that there could even be a God with such a terrible thing that's happening. How could there be a God when you're in so much pain and so much agony? But what is it that we see the psalmist do here? cries out to the Lord. And crying out to God is a response of faith. We cry out to God because he is, because he hears, because he cares, and because he acts. On our way to worship the Lord, we don't hide our problems or pretend they aren't there or dispose of them for a little while in the magic car parking lot until we get back from church and pick them up again. Now, in the midst of of our problems in the midst of these depths we find ourselves in, we continue to come to God because we know that God is the one who reaches into these depths and can pull us out. 
We cry out to God because he hears us. He promises to hear. Psalm 145 verses 18 and 19 say this. It says, The Lord is near to all who call upon him. To all who call upon him in truth, he will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. When you find yourself in the depths, and you will find yourself in the depths at some point in your life, I can almost guarantee it. Cry out to the one true God who hears, and he will save you. It won't be in your own time frame, and it probably won't be in the way that you would like him to do it. But he promises to answer, and he promises to do it. While we're in the midst of our depths, it's easy to blame God for our problems. It's easy to doubt his nature, to begin to say, this is who God is, and define God based on our circumstances. And we say, God, if, if you were really love, then I wouldn't be suffering if you really loved me. Or God, if you were really good, I wouldn't be going through the things that you're bringing me through right now. Or God, if you were really all-powerful, then you would really put an end to evil, and it would be done away with. Or if God fill in the blank here with whatever thoughts you might have, then he wouldn't fill in the blanks here with whatever experience you're going through. Anyone who makes these claims doesn't really know the God of Scripture. That or else they have forgotten who God is. And they've crafted a God in their own image. The God, is, as Murray had read from Jeremiah 9.24, the God who exercises loving kindness the one who fulfills justice and brings about justice on this earth and in this earth and righteousness as well. This is who God is. But instead, we've traded the true God for a God in our own image. According to our own ideas of right and wrong, our own ideas of what justice looks like, according to me, listen to it in our culture this week. You don't have to listen very long, but just listen for it. Everyone has their own idea of who God is and what God does. And everybody gets ticked off at this imaginary God who is doing such evil, horrible, terrible things, and they can't believe in this God. And they've rejected the God of the Bible because they think the God of the Bible is this God. When the God of the Bible has revealed himself to be something entirely different, we don't know that if we define God in our own experiences. We know that by looking into his word and seeing what he says he is. And as we look at God's word, we realize that his goodness isn't affected by what we're going through. We realize that Yahweh's existence isn't erased because evil exists in the world. We realize that Yahweh's love isn't contingent or based upon how well we behave. Actually, each one of these examples are reasons why God acted in history of why God decided to do what he was going to do before the foundations of the world were set. And this is the very reason why God decided before time began to send his one and only son into this world, and why Christ took on flesh and dwelt among us in the messiness of this life, to reveal to us God's love, that people might know who the true God is, that they might see his love, that they might see his goodness, that they might see the action that God takes against evil in this world. Have you ever been in a discussion, or, or maybe let's go with an argument. We've all been in arguments before. Have you ever been in an argument when, with someone, and all of a sudden, they bring something up from 10 years ago, and all of a sudden, the argument is lost? 
They bring this up from 10 years ago as justification against this horrible thing that you're doing right now. And they won't accept any word that you say. You'll never live it down. You'll never get past it. It's hard to have any profitable discussion about what you are trying to argue about or reason about together when the past keeps getting brought up again and again. And you just are finding out that you are a really terrible, horrible human being. That's not love. That's not love. As Paul writes in the famous love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, love keeps no record of wrong. The psalmist knew this as he was writing this even centuries before Paul had written this down. See, the God of the New Testament is the same God of the Old Testament. And that God of the Old Testament is still the God who is love and who keeps no record of wrong. Listen to what he says here in verses 3 and 4. The psalmist writes, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. And though he rightfully should deal with us according to our sin, that would be just, that would be right of him to do. Instead, he has chosen to deal with us in an entirely different way. He deals with us instead in his mercy and in his grace. Because the Lord is merciful. The Lord is love. And it's a mercy that we can bet our lives on. The psalmist doesn't place his trust in doing more good things than bad things here. He doesn't place his confidence in himself and his own ability to do whatever it is that he wants to do. Instead, he places all of his confidence and all of his trust in the Lord and in his mercy and grace. Long before Jesus was born, the psalmist acknowledges God's mercy here, saying, You keep no record of wrong. If you should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? But he knows that the Lord doesn't. God doesn't record our sins so that he can make sure that we get the punishment that we deserve and we don't get off easy. But rather, he forgives us. He deals with us not according to our deeds, but again, according to his mercy and his love in Christ. The debt of the psalmist's sins would be paid in full, and the Lord would be the one who provided that payment and who would be the payment. God reveals his love for us in this way, that while we were yet sinners, Christ paid that penalty for us. God revealed his love for us as Christ died for us. And God in Christ forgives you. The debt of our sin has been paid in full by Jesus, and it is finished. And so instead of running a rap sheet of all the wrong things that we've ever done in our lives, God delights to clothe us with Christ's righteousness. Not just to say you haven't sinned anymore. No, he recognizes the sin, but he deals with the sin, and he gives us something entirely different. Christ's righteousness. So not only are you a sinner anymore, you're not a sinner, but you are righteous and clothed with Christ. It's not just the absence of our sin and our guilt. It is the presence of God's righteousness in Christ in you. And God delights in doing this. This is the God who the psalmist writes of here. This is the God who is revealing himself in Scripture. He delights to show us his mercy and his grace so that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so assured and confident in God's forgiveness in Christ, the psalmist waits even though he is still in the depths. He waits. And so we wait too. We wait for the Lord to act in whatever way that he chooses. 
knowing who he is and knowing how he will act. Luther writes this. He says that those who wait for the Lord ask for mercy, but they leave it to God's gracious will when, how, where, and by what means he helps them. We all have our own ideas how God will save us from the situations we find ourselves in. And we say, God, just do this for me. And we cry out to him. And it's good that we do that. But God will answer. He will hear our prayers. But he doesn't always answer it the way that we want him to. But we know that he does answer it. And so we wait for God's answer. The psalmist's faith and our faith rests solely and securely in the mercy of God. The Lord may choose to permit us to languish in the depths a little bit longer. And this causes us to anticipate his coming all the more. In fact, this is where we find ourselves today. We're still waiting. And we're still suffering the injustice of this world. And some may suffer more than others. We'll recognize that and acknowledge that. But yet we still suffer with sin in this world. People sin against us. We sin against others. We sin against God, and that affects us. But we wait confidently, knowing that the Lord doesn't mark our iniquities, but he deals with us in his grace and mercy instead. And we wait for the Lord's return as the morning watchman waits for the morning to come, not as a judge who is going to come and, and declare the sentence on us, but as a Savior who is coming to take us home and to finally reach down into the depths that we find ourselves in and establish us on the firm foundation of his word and his grace. And Christ will come again, which brings us to the last verses of this psalm. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The psalmist closes here with confidence with a confident trust and mercy in the Lord, and again, in his loving kindness and his character and his nature. And he rests in that one true God who redeems abundantly and has promised to redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Not only has he promised to redeem us, but he has. According to the riches of his grace through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses in Christ. And 2,000 years ago, that rap sheet that we always like to point back to, and every single accusation that was written against us, Paul writes in Colossians, was nailed to the cross. And it's covered in Christ's blood. And we bear those sins no more. Instead, we are clothed with Christ and his righteousness. We know this as we study God's word. But yet we still only know this in part because our experience doesn't always back that up yet. We haven't experienced it fully in our lives. And so we wait for this redemption, this final redemption to come. We wait just like that psalmist, assured that the morning light will come. We wait more than the watchman for the morning, for our redemption. And while we wait, we have been assured of, of what God has done in Christ for us. But while we wait, we're also given a glimpse of this full redemption of what that will look like and what that will be. In Revelation 21, John writes this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. 
and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, for these things, the first things, have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. This is the hope that we have, that we cling to as we wait, as we suffer the injustice in this world, as people continue to sin against us, and as we continue to wrestle with the sin in our own lives. We know that this is what God has promised to do. And we wait and trust in his hope and his mercy. We wait with hope. As the psalmist waited confidently for the forgiveness of sins and the appearing of the Savior to come, we wait with that same confidence. And we have hope. A hope that is greater than the depths that we find ourselves in. A hope that's based not on our ability to obey God and keep all of his rules, but a hope that's based on the character and nature of Yahweh, of the one who hears our cries, the one who keeps no records of wrong, the one who forgives our sin, the one who, with whom there is loving kindness and steadfast love, and the one who clothes us with his own righteousness. This is the God who abundantly redeems, and we wait with anticipation for Yahweh to act. This is the one that we have come to worship. We're ready to hear his word, knowing who he is and what he does. We're ready to hear that word that reaches to us even when we're in the deepest of depths. There is no place that we can go apart from his presence where he cannot reach us. That word that gives us hope and confidence, that word that forgives our sins, that delivers that forgiveness, that word in which we delight as we wait for the Lord's return, that word that gives us a solid foundation on which to build our lives. Now that we know who it is that we've gathered to worship, we can worship in the midst of our own depths. We can bring our problems to God and cry out to him because he is the one who hears and the one who acts. And now that we know what God has done in the past, we're ready to worship him. And not only to worship him, but call others to worship him as well. Call others out to hope in this Lord. We call others to hope in this Lord. Those with whom we live, those with whom we work, those with whom we agree, and those with whom we disagree, and those who are clamoring for justice and righteousness and mercy, we bring them to the hope that is found only in the Lord, the one who, with whom there is loving kindness, justice, and righteousness. O Israel, hope in the Lord. O believer, hope in the Lord. O soul who is currently in the depths, hope in the Lord. And O sinner, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your word and for its truth. We thank you that your word comes and meets us where we're at, Lord, no matter how far down in the depths that we may be. Father, we pray that you would help us to put our hope and our trust and our confidence in you. We thank you, Lord, that you not only have dealt with our sins, but you also clothe us with your righteousness. Help us, Father, to point others who are looking for these things to you, 
and to the grace and mercy and love that is found in you, and Lord, also to the righteousness that is found only in you too. Father, we pray that you would heal us and draw our hearts toward you today and every day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.